From thereabouts, my name is Angus Morton, and this is Outspoken. It's sometime around Easter in 2010. Early, on a cool Saturday night, a remix of Kid Cudi's Day and Night can be heard from the street blaring on a sound system somewhere inside. Kids stand on the lawn in steps, greeting each other with enthusiasm. Inside, the house is filled with college-age students who seem to occupy every crevice of every room, drinking cheap beer from a keg and peering at each other over the shoulders of others. It's exactly like every house party scene from every coming-of-age film since, well, since forever. There's that palpable, last-night-of-my-life energy starting to brew. The kind that those in their early 20s seem to be able to muster at least a couple of times a week. Through the front door, a tall, skinny, fair-haired bloke strolls in and the room lights up. Figuratively, but also quite literally. The young man is wearing a shirt on which the word disco is illuminated and appears to be flashing in time with the beat of the music. For a few seconds there's a noticeable shift in the room. It's subtle, almost imperceptible. Heads turn slightly, eyes move, and conversations stutter as their focus is now elsewhere. There's a confidence and grace about this man that captures the room. He is somebody. The night inches towards its middle and the party heats up. A dance floor slowly begins to form in the living room, its gravity pulling those from their crevices until a heaving mass of bodies moving in unison takes over the house. At its center, a light emanates and space opens up. The tall fair-haired guy with a disco shirt is dancing. And he's good. But of course he is. He's a multiple world champion, an Olympian, a winner of Espoir's Paris-Roubaix twice, the son of cycling royalty Connie Carpenter and Davis Finney, and the heir apparent to the throne of the sport of cycling. He's the type of person that jealousy wants you to hate. I mean, who wears a shirt with an electrical circuit in it and thinks they can pull it off? But at the same time, you can't help but be enamored with him. The shirt, the dance moves, the attention all somehow seem a natural fit. You see, I was one of those in the heaving mass, and this was the first time I ever saw Taylor Finney. And what really struck me about him that night was that there was no bike in sight, and yet he still had the ability to captivate everyone in the room. The year is 2019 and the month July. It's freakishly hot in Girona, Spain. Nicholas Jar quietly replaces Kid Cuddy on the stereo. The house is empty and Taylor sits hunched over a notebook doodling mindlessly. The illuminated disco shirt is gone, replaced by a loose-fitting car key. So are the dance moves and partygoers. Instead, it's just me, sitting on a medicine ball with an empty sketch pack, watching him intently. I'm currently banned from entering the US, and so I reside on Taylor's couch, trying to balance his hospitality against my homelessness. This Taylor sits in stark contrast to the one I'd met nearly a decade prior. And as we wait for the sun to set so we can go for a ride, Taylor breaks his silence and looks up at me. I've given notice, he says to me with a grin. Finally. From where I was sitting, Taylor's objectively premature retirement seemed inevitable. I'd seen his interests in reaching the top of the sport become replaced with the desire to find validation in his art. 
But hearing those words come out of his mouth still felt shocking. What happened to the tailor who lit up the dance floor? The media darling of professional cycling? The athlete who nearly single-handedly ushered American cycling into the second decade of the 21st century? And why, at the peak of his career, did Taylor walk away? It had been bugging me. And so, 18 months after that god-awful hot day, I decided to get to the bottom of it. So I called up Taylor, his face appearing on the screen from across the Atlantic, heavily bruised. Having spent a life on a, on a bicycle, you have this confidence of your own ability. Like, even though that confidence has been shattered multiple times over the course of your life, you still have this feeling like, oh, I know exactly like where everything is and my spatial awareness is awesome. And then it's really when you get kind of confident and comfortable and you lose that focus that the cosmos buck you head first. The crashes always happen when you're, like when you least expect it. So I did all of the, you know, the, the jumps. And then it was kind of like, as I was rolling out of it, before I knew it, I was just on my face, like on my head and my shoulder. And I was like, oh man, that's not fun. But otherwise the day was great, so it was fine. Taylor says this, I can't help but feel he's, perhaps inadvertently, reaching for a metaphor on his own life here. The son of cycling royalty who has always wanted to be a football star has seemed so effortless since the moment he threw his leg over a bike, like it was the only thing he was ever meant to do. But just when that path seemed certain, out of nowhere, Taylor would blindside us, changing course, seemingly changing personality, to head in a completely different direction. So what was really going on? This is gonna sound stupid as, and, but it's, you know, as a kid, but I, I'm pretty sure that I wanted to be famous. Like I wanted to be a famous person. And I think that that came from my parents being relatively well known and then feeling like, okay, well, I have to sort of like meet or match that so, I mean, yeah, I wanted to be like a star, you know, I wanted to be like a Visa, Coca-Cola, Olympian person, you know. Of course, you don't realize like at that age what all of that entails. And then you actually meet famous people and you realize that most of them are like really messed up and really kind of scary and like unhappy. And then you go through your own process. That's ultimately where I sort of got to a point where I was like, I don't need to have a million followers on Instagram. I don't need to do this whole thing because it's feels like I'm taking my soul and I'm just like giving it away to a bunch of different people who don't care about it. And that's gonna make me start to act like a weird person like start to act like a sociopath and that's not what I want from my life so it's that self-awareness Taylor possesses that separates him from most other sports stars similar to tennis star Naomi Osaka Taylor is emblematic of a generation that won't stand for the world in which the sport they love is twisted out of context Taylor's case that meant walking away 
I'd been kind of fantasizing about retiring from the sport for quite a while. Well, it's like everything is is mapped out for you in terms of your calendar and like what you're going to do from a from a week to week basis is like you pretty much know in January what you're going to do all the way through until October. And then even when you get into October, you have like a couple weeks of, you know, quote unquote off season, but it's, you know, three weeks is not really enough time to fully express yourself as an adult. So I just felt like, what's the point of, of making money as an athlete and putting money in the bank and then putting all of this energy into this sport and then finally deciding like, okay, I've had enough with this. Uh, what's the point of just going directly from this like high-paced environment into another high-paced environment or like just immediately thinking like, okay, I have to go get a job or I have to become a director for a team or I have to do this or that. I just really wanted like, I wanted to just clean the slate and give myself an opportunity to like find out what it is that I really wanted to do in my free time and is a very grateful position to be in, you know? So just like taking that time. I felt like in the last couple of years of my career that the ticking the box of what I needed to do in training every day was almost, it just felt like it was in the way of all of the other things that I wanted to do. So that was another part of the fantasy is, was like, what if I can wake up and I can just make music all day? Or what if I can wake up and I can just go painting and I don't have to go throttle myself on the bike because I feel like I'm I'm constantly behind everybody else who's training, you know? So I definitely I'm quite a quite an ADD person in the sense that I, I feel like I'm ADD but over a longer period of time in the sense that I get really obsessed with something for like two, three, four, five weeks. And then that thing changes and I give like myself fully to something else for another period of time that's, you know, like long, but also not long. You know, five weeks is not really that long of a time. So with this transition, I've gone through periods like during the quarantine, I mean, we couldn't leave our apartment here in Spain. So that was just like, okay, well, it's time for music. And that's just all I did was learn about Ableton and and how to mix and how to make music. And then as soon as we were let outside, like nature took over and I wanted to just be outside. And I've definitely had the feeling like I want to ride my bike still almost every day. But then there's all of these other projects that I wouldn't have had the bandwidth to even consider doing because when you're training all of the time, and I noticed this with Kasha, like when she's training really hard, when she's done training, she has a desire to do other things, but physically she just cannot do them. And it's like, I see this weird frustration in her, but there's also a satisfaction that comes from, from training all of the time and you you feel okay about doing nothing for like the rest of the day. Whereas I feel like I've removed that 
and I'm just sort of constantly more productive over the whole day. And I think because I've um, touched back uh, on meditation a lot, like I, I do that every day. I feel like that's been that's been helpful for me to not feel like I am totally lost or like I don't have a, a purpose. Uh, it's helped me to respect the fact that all of these different factors, all of these different things are happening around me and affecting my life. And it's really up to me to just kind of go with whatever is is happening. R right now though, it's, it's all about what can I give? I feel a very strong urge of like, how can I give my attention and my resources to kids who are just, just want to have fun but like maybe come from parents who are separated or are struggling through COVID because I had so much help when I was that age like everything was literally I, I had to do nothing you know I was like dropped onto the start line and like right now my my thing is just trying to give as much as I possibly can because that's ultimately what makes me feel the most satisfied at the end of the day. Even if after a near-career-ending accident, he had failed to fulfill the promise his career once held for him. Taylor was far from an average racer, netting in eighth place at the Paris-Roubaix in just 2018, among several other noticeable performances. Performances that most other pros would consider career highlights. So why not just ride out the next 10 years making good money pedaling your bike? I remember my contract negotiations and it's a bit different within the professional cycling environment because you're dealing, you're not dealing with the brands directly. You're dealing with teams that are sponsored by brands. And so you're choosing a team, but it is that that team comes with like 20 different brands that you almost like inherit as something that you have to promote. It's not something that you choose. Yeah, of course, these teams will come to you and basically tell you that they're going to give you like the whole world on a plate and you can have this and you can have that and you can have this and like, oh yeah, that's no problem. Like, bum, 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 like big smile. Like, let's, you know, have a glass of wine and celebrate. And then it's like, sign here now, like sign this. And then once you sign that thing, like everything is different. And that should be obvious. You know, it's obvious to me now, but it's, it wasn't obvious to me when I was a kid. Because when you're a kid and these brands are telling you like, yeah, we're gonna build you a custom bike because you're a giant and we're gonna do this for you and we're gonna do that for you. And then at the end of the day, once you sign the contract, yes, the money comes into your bank account, but all of the other words that were used to sell you on your decision I would say like 50% of them are actually manifest in reality. So just like keeping that in mind that like you are sort of like the pretty girl at the bar and there's just going to be all of these weird like trickster dudes coming in. And we're not talking about American trickster dudes. Like there's American trickster dudes, but there's also like Dutch trickster dudes Swiss trickster dudes, like international, you know? They speak like a convincing language that you don't even understand, but you like it. 
I just want I want people to be careful and recognize that like it's all a game and all of the guys who are playing the game like all of the guys these guys who own teams like they all talk to each other they're all chatting with each other all the time it's this weird you're a pawn as a rider you're you're a pawn in this like larger sort of weird ego game that these guys are playing that you don't you will never understand unless you actually start to play that game yourself just shut up and ride your bike you might say but that is the thing about modern professional sports it's complicated if you think hard enough In his essay, How Tracy Austin Broke My Heart, David Foster Wallace talks about how we obsess over pro athletes because we project them as God in man. Great athletes are profundity in motion, he writes. They enable abstractions like power and grace and control to become not only incarnate, but televisable. To be a top athlete, performing is to be that exquisite hybrid of animal and angel that we average unbeautiful watchers have such a hard time seeing in ourselves. And, as DFW says, we expect that same idealism in all aspects of their lives, beyond the tennis court and the bike. We want athletes to be fascinating, and to be honest, almost none are. They break our hearts. Taylor is a rare exception, a personality so captivating he lights up the dance floor and NBC. His sponsors knew it and signed him for it, and yet they tried to suppress it. Be yourself but don't be yourself. And what I started having a problem with at really pretty early on in my career was that I was promoting things because I was told to promote them, because I was paid to promote them, but I didn't actually use them and I didn't actually like them. So then I was like, okay, in reality, I'm I'm lying to a whole group of people who are like gonna go out and buy this thing because they think I like it. When they actually know that I'm getting paid to like push this product, but they're still gonna buy it. And I, I mean, we all do it. Like you see, you see like Kanye wearing a pair of Adidas and you're like, you know, yeah, I want that. And you know that like they have a deal, that they get paid, like there's money, there's a transaction, but you still, there's this weird thing that the whole industry feeds off of, of like this ignorance. And I, I don't like that. So I've been kind of on like an anti-sponsor crusade on Instagram, although there are many brands that I, that I really like and I want to be partnered with and want to promote their stuff but I feel like I've spent so much time promoting things that I had to promote, that I need like a period of time to just like cleanse myself, even of that way of thinking. Cause I get on Instagram now still like a year and a half after retiring and I'm like tagging different things and feel like I have to do this. And if I don't tag somebody, I feel like really bad about it. Afterwards, I'm going to sleep at night. I'm like, oh shit, I forgot to tag Pac in that post, you know? And like, I really like Pac, (laughs) but I just was, it's just this weird, like, paranoia. And it all comes from, from those just being a professional. So I don't know. 
For many, it might seem spoiled to criticise from a precision which Taylor himself pointed out is a privileged one. But it's an interesting insight into the malleable mind of a young professional and the power dynamic that exists between sponsor and athlete. I remember being in Austin, Texas with the Lance Armstrong when he was like one of the early uh, celebrities on Twitter. And, you know, I remember like one night he's like 25,000 followers, like, and was like super stoked about it. And like, that was huge. You know, I remember that, like how crazy that seemed. And that was in 2009 or something. And um, I was always asking him to like, give me shout outs and stuff and like, and then I would see all of these people following me. I mean, I think, I think it even goes back to like having your personal Facebook account. And I remember just through cycling news articles and stuff, like I would get friend requests from all of these random cyclists. And it was like, yeah, hell yeah. Like, yes, 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 yes. And all of a sudden I like maxed out my friends list on Facebook. And then I was like, oh shit, I actually can't even follow any of the people that I want to keep up with because now I just have all of these random, mostly like middle-aged white men who like bikes. And like now this is, this is like my internet demographic, you know? So yeah, I definitely, I just came up like right with social media. And I always thought that that was like one of the things that I was quite good at like I could use it well and I liked to be quite outspoken on Twitter but then when I turned pro I was told to be quiet like many times on Twitter and it was either um, not on Twitter but by, from the team about what I was saying on Twitter and like even uh, I did my first Giro d'Italia in 2012 and I won the first stage and I was in the pink jersey and then the rest of the race like I was just so stoked with like I've always been like a nice person when I turned pro it was like I just want to be friends with everyone you know it's like there's like here's Fabian Cancellara and Tom Boonen and Mark Cavendish and like all these guys and I was just like I want to be friends with them you know so I'm gonna be like super nice I didn't have this uh ingredient like this I want to kill you you know because we're racing together it was more like like you're sick dude you're awesome let's hang out so I would always congratulate the winners of the stages on on Twitter in the 2012 Giro d'Italia and then at some point the team management was like they actually implemented a rule that you're not allowed to congratulate other people who win unless it's on your team. <laughs> it was like a team-wide mandate, you know, like it was sent to everyone and it wasn't directed entirely at me. But there were multiple times when I was younger where there would be these like team-wide mandates that were just like, like I'm the only person really doing that. So like, why don't you just talk to me about it, A, and then B, like, what the fuck? Are you serious? <laughs> What's wrong with you? Like, where is that coming from? Twitter was just the tip of the iceberg when it came to accepting the hard truth. Professional sport is a business. Many, perhaps all, 
pro cyclists fall in love with the freedom of pedaling one foot over the next. But management's ultimate goal is not for you to have fun, it's for you to win at all costs. There was a time when I was quite outspoken about like finish bottles in races, which are these concoctions. Like when I first started racing, you know, the EPO and blood doping era was seemingly past, but there was still like a huge amount of opiate abuse in the sport. And like, I don't know if that has completely gone away, but it was pretty, pretty widespread in my first couple of years that you would just like smash a couple tramadol like at the end of the race which is basically like taking a Vicodin or two along with like a bunch of caffeine and maybe some Sudafed and then I mean that's a bomb right there if I took one of those right now like that sent me to the moon I was never into that like I you would get offered that, but it was, I was like, I don't think that I'd need like an opiate painkiller today to get through this race, you know, like, but it was just a thing, like almost, especially in the classics, like so many of the, of the guys were doing that. So, um, I was kind of like, this is fucked up. So I, I, I said some stuff about it in an interview And then I also talked about how there was like a fair amount of like kind of strangely timed or like coincidentally timed cortisone uh, injections that were given to some people like going into some races. And I was just like, like, this is, you know, you don't need it. If you need a cortisone injection, like you should be out for a while, you know, not like, oh, I got a cortisone injection and now I'm like winning Flanders, you know. And uh, I actually got a cortisone injection eventually when I, after I broke my leg and I just like was flying and like half of my leg didn't work. And I was like, okay, I think I understand this now. But so I spoke out of, against that. And then I received quite a bit of backlash from the, yeah, from the, the management. Again, just shut up and ride your bike, right? For those of us who are fans of the sport of cycling, this should concern you. With organisations like the NFL facing severe criticism over how it handled Colin Kaepernick speaking out, this raises similar questions within the world of cycling. Questions about ethics, about free speech, about athlete rights, and about what an organisation feels like they need to hide. I mean, of course, as like an entitled young American, uh, like confident young man, I was like, of course I should be able to say whatever I want about this because in my mind, this is wrong. And, and you know, that's what you grow up reading about in the news or like people talk about the things that are wrong and then hopefully the thing gets fixed. But then once you're inside of the machine, if you start talking about the things that are wrong and then, you know, those things are closely linked to where your paycheck is coming from and you also you're in a position where people can tell you what to do and they can punish you for not obeying um, the most random rules that they can put in place at any point in time then you realize that you actually you're not like Harry Potter 
you know, you're not like the hero of the story because you have to shut up. I mean, I definitely struggled like in my first couple years uh, just with feeling like, you know, I couldn't express myself in the way that I really wanted to, or I wasn't, I wasn't celebrated in the way that I thought I should be for speaking honestly about things that I thought were wrong. Within the actual group of the Peloton or the management itself, uh, like outside of that, you know, people are like, yeah, he speaks up against this and that. But then within, you know, within the group, there's like very much this, um, this is our sort of secret world. And, but I think, I think that it was really through um, being discouraged to be happy for other people openly on Twitter and then just feeling like I could, like everything I was going to write on there was going to come back to haunt me at some point and that I was going to get in trouble for it and I was going to have to like answer to someone that was just, I was like, you know, screw this. Like, I don't, I don't need it. Yeah. That's where a lot of the frustration came from was like, you know, I'm pretty sure you guys pay me because I have this sort of attitude and this um, visibility and this like way of communicating and approaching different situations that like makes things more real and um, more tangible and that allows people to connect with you know what's what's going on but at the same time the people what I realized is it's the same in any high pressure high um, like high powered professional environment is everybody's kind of like in between everybody else like the person that is above you is in between you and then the person that's above that person and the person that's above them is in between them and the person that's like I don't know if that really makes sense but everyone is receiving like from above them something that they're pushing down and then as the rider because you really like you go out and do the race and like in your mind you think you are the most important person it's also like everyone else's job to make you think that you're important and then you realize that it's actually there's all these people above you kind of like um, holding these strings and then you really have no power and when it comes to a point of like okay you need to stop like that comes from above and you're not you can't do anything about it really because you they own your image rights like they own you they own you How Tracy Broke My Heart, David Foster Wallace also talks about how perhaps what made Austin a prodigy tennis star was her vapidity. She didn't overthink it. She didn't really think about her role in sport and society at all. She hit the ball and won the match. Taylor, on the other hand, couldn't help but think. He recognised that his two wheels were simply a cog in a much bigger wheel over which he had no control. Racing as a professional athlete wasn't enough. 
And one thing that I really started to connect with, with art that I didn't feel like I had in professional cycling is as a cyclist, as an athlete, as an endurance athlete especially, you're putting so much energy into something and the energy is just dissipating, it's just going away. With art, you take your energy and you put your energy into something and then you have something like for the rest of your life that exists. It's a physical thing. And I started to really feel a need to kind of have, like almost have that proof that I put energy and and effort into something and that it like was not, it didn't just dissipate into the air. You know, um, like you go do, you do these races and you're just like putting out all of, all of the energy that you can and you come home, you have nothing. You have nothing except for just maybe some photos on the internet. Maybe you have like another addition to your Wikipedia page, you know, like who gives a shit? Like <laughs> it's Wikipedia, you know, it's the internet. And then I can spend like, a month painting and I have all of these like all of these weird things that are like showing me different things about myself and helping me to improve or evolve and better myself as a person. Music is this thing that I um, it's always there. I feel like music is like the partner that I'm going to die with. Whenever I hit my head, like, cause I'm a very active person, you know, and I live, right now I've been living in Spain and the weather's nice almost all the time. And the thing with music is you're usually inside and it's like a, it's a, it's quite an isolated experience and I love it, but I also love being outside. So as long as I have energy in my body, but Anyways, anytime I hit my head, anytime I crash or whatever, I'm like, fuck yes. I have like days where I can just make music. I don't have to think about like, did I go out and exercise today? You know, I just, I can just be like a lazy person and just use my brain and just feel frequencies and and just, just feel like I, there's no, I don't get any feeling any physical feeling from anything else than music. Uh, That's like at the same level, like this sort of euphoria. I don't get that same euphoria, even painting or doing jumps, like doing jumps is a totally different thing on the mountain bike. But um, I feel like music is this thing that I'm just, I'm, I'm like so happy that I have it and I feel like I'm gonna have it forever. Despite their apparent dissimilarities, art and sport actually share a lot in common. Use your mind and body to push yourself to the limit, to go beyond the possible, and to connect to the world around you. As Taylor's career progressed, he began to question the impact it was having. Was there any permanence to his pursuits on a bike? At the same time, he began to see that permanence emerge in other aspects of his life that had appeared more transient in his art, his music, his work building trails. I'm pretty interested in this idea of impact 
and leaving an, an impact on not only like a geographical location, but also on just other other people, I guess. Um, so the working on the land, like working on the trails, and then uh, I feel like the trail building really was started by this Ocho obsession and the rut that's turned into like a whole like you know and I'm making like very big berms and then the, you're like okay that's awesome I like this idea of because I wasn't supposed to be here you know this year like in my in my plan last year I was I bought a sprinter van and I was going to build it out and I was just going to drive around the U.S. and I was going to hang out with my friends Ron and Nams and I was just gonna like be kind of a bike hobo for the whole year and then I ended up like I ended up in Girona like the last place I thought I was gonna spend my first year as a you know retired professional cyclist like surrounded by professional cyclists so I feel like I've been here for so long that I'm like really interested in like leaving an impact on this place that is uh, leaving it better than when I came here so that people like me who come here in the future can like go ride this trail, for example, and be like, this place is awesome. Or they can see some art like murals that I've done and be like, this place is sick. And like, I don't know, just be a little bit more stoked. I think that I like my goal in life is just to essentially express myself as as openly and as clearly um, and as powerfully as possible as possible. There's so many layers to it. It's something that you it's as soon as you start peeling it back, you realize like it's endless. You know, um, the the limits of ex- expression and like the ways in which you can do it. Uh, and I feel like we're everybody is just constantly expressing themselves at, at all time, and we've sort of have different words for it. But it's at the core. I feel that expression is an intention is is essentially everything. And I think um, my ideal scenario would be uh, like i I feel that i I always want to even in a in a social setting I want to bring the like the best out of people around me and i want to I want to help those people to connect with other people that are sitting right in front of them and I feel quite a deep responsibility and I don't know if this comes from like moving to Italy when I was 12 and having to learn a, another language and just being uh, like being really vulnerable at at a, at a at an age that's already really vulnerable um, but I I feel like I need to extract the best things about people from them and then whether it's through just conversation or whether it's through like creating a cool trail that then makes them like, yes, you know, or um, seeing a piece of art that's like inspiring to them somehow that allows them to to think like, well, I could do that, you know, like I could do something like that. And then like 
just from that thought they can have like a change there's a change there um so that in my ideal um you know fantasy obituary <laughs> brought out the best in others didn't wear a lot of deodorant I'm in Girona and just over the last couple of weeks I've met a lot of mountain bike people and I was I've I spent the whole summer riding around here and I would always ride with my friend David and maybe some other people occasionally but it I I always felt like my community was quite small and then ever since it it rained for the first time in the summer I have been just like obsessed with cleaning and uh sculpting one of my favorite trails around here it's quite a dry climate so when it's wet is the only time that you can kind of move things around and have it stay uh so I I've probably put like over 100 hours into this trail just because I'm like obsessed with it and I don't have a job and um really through through this trail now on the weekends it's like jammed like packed with enduro kids everywhere and so through just working on this trail like i've met all of these different people and um older you know like all ages but i'm i've been mostly intrigued uh by riding with like the younger kids because they are just so good and they it's like really it's just effortless for them so uh i like i like to follow them and i like to you know learn from them because i'm relatively new to mountain biking i mean i've been riding a mountain bike my whole life but i i haven't been shredding hard for my whole life so these kids are half of my age and they're also just re- is just really easy to hang out with high school kids because they have to go to school usually like after we ride and all they care about is just like having a good time and there's no adult drama they're not like complaining about their jobs and um they, they don't talk about covid and they're just like they're just trying to be whatever you know they're like pretty sure they none of them have lost their virginity you know so it's like <laughs> they just have like their whole lives ahead of them it's really fun there's a a 13 year old and um a 15 year old and a two 17 year olds ultimately for taylor in a very meta way sport reflects and refines how he wants to live his life so like mountain biking and and especially enduro and downhill is like totally different community and mentality than road cycling. It's so much more about community and encouragement and stoke and just spreading positivity whereas I feel like within road cycling there's always this kind of like there's always this the Strava leaderboard there's always like who's kind of the best within the group. There's always this kind of like bluffing that you're doing to be like, you know, 
I don't know. There's just this weird kind of like high school girl energy between everyone. So it's much easier within the mountain biking environment to just simply be a positive person. Freed from the confines of a pro tour schedule, management's rules and sponsor obligations, Taylor has come back to sport on his own terms. Arthur Crystal wrote about a man reflecting on life at its end, when only the fleeting memories remained. Of the people that had come and gone, Arthur said, he was surrounded by people he often liked, but never admired. It's a heartbreaking line in many ways, and when I read this, I couldn't help but ask it of myself. Liked by many as the disco dancing star, Taylor made the hard decision to step away from that in search of something else. As fans, we'd have liked him to win more world titles and take the helm of the sport, to go on and define a generation, returning cycling to its mainstream pedestal. It sounds strange to say, but that would have been the easy route for him. In recusing himself from the professional ranks, Taylor chose a harder path, and regardless of whether you like the outcome, you cannot help but admire him for doing so. That change forced us as fans to reckon with our projections of who he wanted him to be with the person he really is. For many of us, it was easiest just to unfollow, be passive and find a new athlete to like. But for those who didn't jump ship, whilst it still upset us, it also forced us to change with him. Taylor said the professional sport is just entertainment, but I disagree with that. I think his own story is representative of how sport is more than just the doing. In sport, we find an allegory for life, a way to understand ourselves that transcends athletics. It requires us to participate, to go beyond the theatrics, and in doing so, ask questions of ourselves. Are we just content with liking our heroes, or do we want to be challenged by them, to come to admire them for all of their characteristics, regardless of if that matches what we wanted them to be? This episode of Outspoken was written, produced, and edited by myself, Angus Morton, and Abby Levine. Executive producer is Isaac Carson. Engineering and sound design by Ben Cranell, and music by Builders T. As we have alluded to, there are a range of new podcasts in the stable of thereabouts, which we are excited to share with you. You can find those, along with our back catalogue of episodes, wherever you get your podcasts, or at our new hub, online at thereabouts.co. That's thereabouts.co.